welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Hello, and welcome to this miscellaneous episode. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the Upper GI Esophagogastric Module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And our topic today is pretty wide. We are going to be looking at esophageal foreign bodies, esophageal diverticulums, and benign esophageal tumors. Kicking it off today with esophageal foreign bodies. A bit of background, the esophagus is the most common site for impaction of foreign bodies within the gastrointestinal tract. More than 75% of foreign bodies in the GIT are in the esophagus. The majority of the time this occurs in children, six months to six years, and some common foreign bodies include toys, coins, and batteries. In adults, food boluses or bones are the most common reason for a foreign body. Quickly reviewing our anatomy, there are four parts of the esophagus that have a narrowing, and these are the sites where most foreign bodies will become impacted. This includes the cricopharyngeus at 15 centimetres, the aortic arch, which is about 24 centimetres, the left main bronchus at 26 centimetres, and the gastroesophageal junction, usually around 40 centimetres. Esophageal impaction may also be associated with esophageal pathology, which could include a Shatsky ring, peptic stricture, the presence of eosinophilic esophagitis, or even a malignant stricture, which have all been covered in earlier episodes of this podcast. The presentation of an esophageal foreign body is usually a patient presenting with a clear history of ingestion and dysphagia. I am mostly an adult doctor, but I can anticipate that for children, the diagnosis may be unclear and that children may not be able to give you a history or may be uncooperative. Suggestive symptoms of an esophageal obstruction includes refusing feeds, gagging or choking, drooling, and an inability to manage their own saliva and or respiratory symptoms. The other thing to remember is that impaction in the cervical esophagus can also cause a tracheal obstruction as well. This is called steakhouse syndrome. And so patients can present with respiratory distress from an impacted esophageal foreign body. The other thing is that if somebody passes a foreign body through the esophagus and it causes trauma, then they may have the feeling of a persistent foreign body being in situ despite it having already passed. On examination, patients may look completely normal. They may have evidence of perforation with neck swelling or tenderness, erythema, subcutaneous emphysema, or be systemically unwell with signs of sepsis or SIRS. Imaging can be a helpful adjunct to try to localize the object, especially if the history is unclear. An x-ray may be helpful. Glass is always visible on plain films and obviously... uh, Batteries and coins will be radio-opaque. An AP and a lateral may be useful to differentiate whether or not the foreign body is in the esophagus or in the trachea or bronchus. A CT scan can occasionally be used for non-radio-opaque objects and can also be used for the detection of drugs and can actually determine 
what the drug is based on the Hounsville units, which I thought was quite interesting. Endoscopy, though, is the ultimate test because it can not only diagnose what the foreign body is, where it is, but can also be therapeutic with removal of that foreign object. That takes us really into the management of an esophageal foreign body. In general, the majority of foreign bodies will pass through the gastrointestinal tract uneventfully. Some will require endoscopic removal due to impaction, and a very small minority will require surgery. Some indications for an immediate emergency intervention would be if somebody had airway compromise, if they had absolute dysphagia, so they've got complete obstruction, they're not able to handle their secretions and therefore at high risk of aspiration, if it's a sharp object, and if it's a button battery that is impacted. Urgent intervention may be indicated in an esophageal foreign body that is not sharp, in somebody with a food bolus impaction, if the foreign body is a magnet and it's within endoscopic reach, and if there is a sharp object in the stomach or duodenum. Some patients can have observation for up to 24 hours if they are asymptomatic and they are round, smooth objects that have been ingested. A non-urgent endoscopy may be indicated if there is a blunt object in the stomach that is quite large, so more than 2.5 centimetres in diameter, or if it fails to pass within three to four weeks. And if an object is very long, so more than five or six centimetres long, because this is unlikely to traverse the pylorus or the duodenum and can be difficult to remove once it is impacted. People get very concerned about button batteries because they do have the ability to cause significant damage if impacted in the esophagus. And that definitely is an indication for urgent intervention, like I mentioned. But if the button battery has passed into the stomach, then 90% of these will actually pass through the gastrointestinal tract without complication and can be observed with serial x-rays. Um, an intervention to remove it with an endoscopy may be indicated if it hasn't passed through the stomach without within 48 hours. But usually once it's in that wider lumen, it doesn't cause the same damage. Endoscopic removal is usually done with the patient intubated due, due to the risk of a prolonged procedure as well as a risk of aspiration. Depending on what the foreign body is, there are a number of different endoscopic tools that we can use to extract foreign bodies such as baskets, grasping devices. For food boluses, this may need to be removed piecemeal and an important thing to be aware of is this should never be blindly pushed into the stomach. Only if the scope can be passed distal to the bolus should this be attempted. The main risk of an endoscopic removal of a foreign body is of perforation, which especially if you can't see past the foreign body and you're pushing and pulling with multiple attempts, um, the risk can be quite high of a perforation. And we haven't covered it yet, but we will be talking about esophageal perforation on the podcast and the potential major sequelae of that. In terms of surgery, this should be only used in the case of failure of endoscopic removal for large objects that are embedded in the wall. And I've never seen this done, but I assume the options would be opening the layers and removing it and then doing a layered sutured repair of the esophagus versus if there was necrosis or damage of the wall of the esophagus, a resection and reconstruction. But this can be something we can ask the special guest when we get them on the program. The next topic I wanted to talk about today was esophageal diverticulums. 
I haven't actually come across any of these in clinical practice, so this was a bit of a learning curve for me. Please let me know if you know something more about this or if I say anything you don't think is correct. From what I've read, it looks like there are three different types of esophageal diverticulums. This includes the Zenkers diverticulum, which is also known as a pharyngoesophageal diverticulum, the midesophageal or parabronchial diverticulum, and the epiphrenic or supradiaphragmatic diverticulum. These can be classified as to whether they are true diverticulums or false diverticulums. A true diverticulum means that all three layers of the wall of the esophagus are involved. So that includes the mucosa, submucosa, and muscularis layer. A false diverticulum is only involving the mucosa and submucosa, which is bulging out through the muscularis layer of the esophagus. Another way of thinking of these is a pulsion or a traction diverticulum. So a pulsion diverticulum is a false diverticulum because only the mucosa and submucosa layers are herniating out. And this is thought to be due to elevated intraluminal pressures from an abnormal motility of the esophagus. And this includes, when we're talking about those three types of esophageal diverticulum, the zenkers and the epiphrenic diverticulum are both pulsion or false diverticulums. Attraction diverticulum, when we're talking about those three types of esophageal diverticulum, is that mid-esophageal diverticulum. And this is thought to to form because of external inflammatory mediastinal lymph nodes, which adhere to the esophagus. And then as they heal and contract, they pull and herniate the esophagus. This is pretty rare, especially in Australia, and is traditionally associated with tuberculosis infections. So moving on to talk about the different types of diverticulum. The Zenkers diverticulum, which is that pharyngoesophageal diverticulum, is a sac-like outpouching of the esophageal mucosa and submucosa through Killian's triangle. Killian's triangle is a potential gap or weak area of the pharyngeal wall between the oblique fibers of the inferior constrictor muscle and the horizontal fibers of the cricopharyngeus muscle. And it's worth looking up a picture of that anatomy to get your head around what that means and where exactly this occurs. It mostly happens in older patients in the seventh to eighth decade of life, and usually in men. And it's thought to be due to a loss of tissue elasticity and muscle tone with age. Like I said, this is a herniation through Killian's triangle and What happens is as the diverticulum enlarges, that mucosal herniation dissects down the usually the left sort of posterior aspect of the esophagus into the superior mediastinum in the prevertebral plane. It's not really clear why this occurs. It's thought that there's high pulsion forces generated due to impaired relaxation of the upper esophageal sphincter, and that's why this is called a pulsion diverticulum. And these patients will present potentially asymptomatically, especially if it's a small diverticulum, but also because of retained food, they can develop halitosis. They can get food trapped there and then being regurgitated back up. They can have dysphagia. There's this concept of having cervical borborygmy, borborygmy being that sound of your stomach sort of gurgling, so having that up in the cervical area due to food being in a diverticulum can be a sign of a Zenkers diverticulum. Patients may describe a feeling of food sticking in their throat. 
They may have weight loss or malnutrition due to not being able to have adequate nutrition. They may have a cough and can uh, get recurrent aspiration pneumonia related to regurgitation of food from the diverticulum. Uh, And they can also have bleeding from the diverticulum due to that irritation of the food being stuck in there. Investigations for Azenka's diverticulum include a barium swallow, which may show that diverticulum at the level of the cricoid cartilage. Endoscopy may demonstrate it if you're looking carefully as you're going through the upper esophagus. And it's often found incidentally and is actually at risk of being perforated if your scope enters into that pouch and you are not aware. Management of Azenka's diverticulum depends on the presentation. If it's completely asymptomatic and small, then you could potentially do nothing. In terms of options for intervention, there is an option for botulinum toxin injections, endoscopic therapies, and for surgery. So the first one was botulinum toxin injections. This may be an option for a patient who is a poor surgical candidate and has a very small diverticulum, where basically you inject the botulinum toxin into the muscle to relax it and allow adequate drainage of the Zenka's diverticulum. The endoscopic option is an endoscopic diverticulotomy. So basically, this involves dividing the cricopharyngeus muscle and the septum between the diverticulum and the esophagus either using electrocautery or a laser, even an endoscopic stapler, which I've never seen used, but apparently is an option here. This basically is dividing the common wall between the esophagus and the diverticulum, which therefore obliterates that sac and allows drainage of the diverticulum. This is good for patients who have larger diverticulums so that there's a good space to be able to divide there to allow adequate drainage. The complications of this procedure are perforation and a retropharyngeal abscess. And this is probably something that you would do in an older patient, but not necessarily in a patient who was younger because it's not really fixing the problem. And it's also inferior in regards to eliminating symptoms related to the diverticulum. Which takes us to surgery. The three main surgical options I came across included a diverticulectomy with a myotomy, a diverticulopexy with a myotomy, or a myotomy alone. A diverticulectomy basically involves removing or excision of the diverticulum, usually with a stapling device, and also a myotomy of that cricopharyngeus muscle. A diverticulopexy is where you suture, fixate, or pexy the diverticulum above the neck of the diverticulum to the prevertebral fascia. And I guess that is to avoid food collecting in there and allows better drainage. And a myotomy alone is just a myotomy of the cricopharyngeus muscle in a similar way that you would with the endoscopic approach. In terms of when you may choose a diverticulectomy over a diverticulopexy, it seems that you are avoiding an anastomosis and the potential complications from a non-healing staple line if you do a diverticulopexy compared to a diverticulectomy. So you may do a pexy in an elderly, frail patient who you don't want to risk the complications and morbidity of a leak. The other thing I read was that if the diverticulum is greater than three centimeters in length, that you may choose to pexy instead of staple to reduce the morbidity associated with a longer staple line. 
The surgical approach to this area is via a left cervical incision over the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. You dissect between the carotid sheath and the trachea where you should be able to find the diverticulum. And usually patients will have a bougie in the esophagus to prevent narrowing. You then perform the diverticulectomy with a TA stapler. You can also do a diverticulopexy through this same incision by inverting and pexying the superior aspect of the diverticulum high up to the pre-vertebral fascia. You should always be performing a myotomy with either of these approaches. And the way you do that in an open technique is through gentle keflad traction on that diverticulum to expose the fibers of the cricopharyngeus muscle, which you divide and um, be careful to bluntly dissect from the underlying mucosa to ensure you don't cause a mucosal injury. That myotomy should be continued down the esophagus for several centimeters. The complications of this procedure, as I've mentioned, is a staple line leak. Patients can also get wound infections. The pexy can lead to perforation of the diverticulum. There's potential injury to surrounding structures, especially the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which we know runs in the tracheoesophageal groove. And you can also narrow the esophagus and cause a stricture. Obviously, a full thickness injury to the esophagus, including damage to the mucosa during the myotomy, can lead to perforation and the complications of mediastinitis associated with that. The next esophageal diverticular is that mid-esophageal diverticular, or also known as the parabronchial diverticular. Like I mentioned earlier, this historically was found due to inflammation from mediastinal lymph nodes that were infected with tuberculosis. Nowadays, we don't see that as commonly, but there are other fibrosing conditions that can cause mediastinitis. Some can be caused by primary motility disorder, such as achalasia, diffuse esophageal spasm, um, or other esophageal motility disorders. So that's something else to keep in mind. The symptoms can be very similar to Azenka's diverticulum, and hemoptysis can rarely occur due to that infectious origin with erosion into the major vasculature. So that's a concern. The investigations we can use for a metasophageal diverticulum are a barium swallow, which is also used in Azenka's. A CT scan here, though, may be helpful, firstly, to assess the mediastinal lymph nodes and rule out other causes of this diverticulum, as well as to lateralize which side the sac is extending into. Endoscopy as well is very helpful with the diagnosis and also rules out any mucosal abnormalities or fistula from the esophagus. If you're worried about an underlying motility disorder, manometry is the key test here. The management depends on the cause of the diverticulum. If there is tuberculosis or histoplasmosis, then this needs medical treatment. If patients have a small diverticulum, especially if it's less than two centimeters, which is the cutoff used in most of the literature I read, then you can observe these if they are asymptomatic. If somebody has a diverticulum that's more than two centimeters or is symptomatic, then surgical intervention is indicated. Usually these will have a wide mouth and rest close to the spine. So the options include a diverticulopexy or a diverticulectomy. Diverticulopexy is pexying the diverticulum up to the thoracic vertebral fascia and a diverticulectomy can be performed with a stapling device. 
And a key here is to try to close the muscle over the excision and also to do a myotomy on the contralateral esophagus to prevent the pressure on your repair. And that last type of diverticular was the epiphrenic diverticular. This is usually adjacent to the diaphragm in the distal third of the esophagus. They are usually found on the right side and tend to be wide-mouthed. And like I said earlier, these are a pulsion diverticulum. We're not really sure why these form, but the theory is due to increased intraluminal pressure leading to this pulsion diverticular. And the presence of an epiphrenic diverticulum is suggestive of an underlying motility disorder. So it's important to make sure you're thinking about that. In patients without a motility disorder, this can also be associated with previous trauma or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The symptoms can range from patients being asymptomatic to being symptomatic with similar symptoms to the first two diverticulum we talked about. The management is similar to a mid-esophageal diverticulum. Again, it's safe to observe these if they're small and asymptomatic and often they do not progress. If the patient is symptomatic, aspirating, or if they're more than two centimeters, then that would be an indication for surgery. Again, the options are diverticulopexy, diverticulectomy, and routine myotomy is indicated on the contralateral side to the diverticulum. Time to review benign esophageal tumors. Most of these tumors are found incidentally during investigation for other symptoms because they are mostly asymptomatic and they're also pretty rare with a prevalence of less than 0.5%. I'm not going to talk about all of the benign esophageal tumors, just a few that I found interesting, but if you want to have a, a read about the different types of tumors, there are a couple of good references I came across. One is an article called Benign Esophageal Lesions, Endoscopic and Pathologic Features by Tsai et al. in the World Journal of Surgery, 2015. And there's another article called Benign Esophageal Tumors by Ha et al. in the Surgical Clinics of North America in 2015. The lesions I'm going to talk about today are GISTs, Lyomyomas, schwannomas, granular cell tumors, and I'll briefly touch on adenomas and papillomas. So starting first with gists, we have already talked about gastric gists, and so there is a lot of crossover here, but gists can occur in the esophagus. As I talked about in the gist episode, gists are mesenchymal cell tumors, which are thought to arise from the interstitial cells of Cajal, and histologically, they can be classified as either spindle cell, epithelioid, or mixed. They can be diagnosed by immunohistochemistry as positive for CD117, which is, corresponds to that C-kit mutation on that tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and also CD34 common. Most GISs will have that activating mutation in KIT, and some will also have a mutation in the PDGFRA alpha genes. The location of the tumor, size of the tumor, symptoms at diagnosis, and mitotic count are the features that we look at to determine prognosis in a patient being diagnosed with a GIST. So in terms of diagnosis, often this will be seen at endoscopy as a submucosal lesion, so normal overlying mucosa. It can project into the lumen or it can be exophytic. 
Endoscopic ultrasound is an important test with GISTs to be able to determine where it is exactly, ensure that it is not extrinsic compression from an adjacent structure, and then also to enable FNA of the lesion, which confirms the diagnosis. Normal biopsies often will just pick up the normal overlying mucosa and may not confirm the diagnosis. A CT chest abdopelvis is required to identify where the lesion is, what side it's on, assess that primary, see how big it is, look to see whether there's any involvement of adjacent organs, and also to look for metastatic disease. The management depends on the size of the tumour and also whether or not it has any symptoms. Tumours that are symptomatic, large, more than two to five centimetres, or have concerning features such as a high mitotic count, may need a resection. The principles of resection for GISTs are that given they spread hematogenously rather than through lymph nodes, a formal oncological resection and lymphadenectomy is not required. So depending on the location of the tumour, a local resection may be sufficient, but this has obvious challenges when you're talking about a resection in the esophagus. The other option is systemic treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitors such as a matnib, which can control the disease for long periods. But this is a pretty rare tumour in a rare location and really should be discussed at an MDT. The next lesion I wanted to talk about is a lyomyoma. This is a smooth muscle tumour arising from the muscularis propria, although it can sometimes arise from the muscularis mucosae instead. It often presents as a submucosal lesion because it's arising from that muscularis propria with normal overlying mucosa, but in the rare case it does arise from the muscularis mucosae fibers, it can present as a polypoid or intraluminal tumor, but this is very rare. It's thought to be a benign tumor, and the histopathology will demonstrate spindle cells arranged in fascicles or whorls with an eosinophilic cytoplasm and few to no mitoses with bland nuclei and minimal cellular atypia. The immunohistochemistry staining will be positive for Desmin and smooth muscle antigen, SMA, and because this is not a GIST, despite the spindle cell appearance on microscopy, it will be negative for CD117 and CD34. It often is found in the middle and distal thirds of the esophagus because that's where the smooth muscle is and will often be found incidentally, but if it's a very large lesion, can present with dysphagia or rarely with GI bleeding. A diagnosis is usually made at endoscopy, but like I said, there's intact overlying mucosa that looks normal, so biopsy of that mucosa will not give you the answer to the diagnosis. In fact, if you do biopsy the mucosa, you can make subsequent management difficult, which we'll talk about in a minute. Endoscopic ultrasound can be helpful to determine the layer of origin, as well as looking at the size of the tumour, the borders, and looking for regional lymphadenopathy. At EUS, lyomyoma is usually well-circumscribed, homogenous-looking lesion. It looks very benign. But if there are any concerning features, then an FNA may be required. A CT scan can also be helpful to rule out invasion, making sure it's not an extrinsic compression giving you that appearance at endoscopy and the relationship of the tumour to the esophagus and other structures. Management of a lyomyoma is interesting. If it's asymptomatic, then you don't need to do anything. You can follow up with another EUS in a couple of months to make sure there's no change of the lesion. 
if the tumor is large or symptomatic, it can be removed because this is a benign tumor and nucleation is an option here. And I've only ever seen this once, but you can actually do a thoroscopic or open or a laparoscopic if it's a very distal lesion, enucleation of the lesion where you basically incise the muscle longitudinally over the tumor. Then you split the muscular coating, circular muscle underneath and use blunt dissection to separate the tumor from the underlying mucosa. You have to be really careful to avoid damaging the mucosa when you do this, which would change this to a full thickness incision in the esophagus and leave that patient open to the potential complications of that. And that's why avoiding biopsy of the mucosa overlying leiomyoma is important because that can cause scarring between the mucosa and the leiomyoma. These patients may need an esophagectomy if the tumor is very large, sort of more than 8 or 10 centimeters. They can also form, rather than a circular or, or ovoid lesion, they can form an annular lesion, which sort of invades around the circumference of the esophagus, so that may not be able to be enucleated. Or if there is multiple lesions, then they may need an esophagectomy. The other thing to consider with the leiomyoma is that it's very rare, but they can progress into a leiomyosarcoma. Like I said, this is very rare. It looks similar, but behaves differently in that they are rapidly enlarging. They may invade other structures. They may be lymphadenopathy. And that's why endoscopic ultrasound and CT scan is important to make sure you're not missing the diagnosis. And the management of a leiomyosarcoma is an esophagectomy with an R0 resection, and it has a pretty poor prognosis as sarcomas do in other areas of the body. Moving on now to talk about schwannomas. These arise from the schwann cells of the neural plexus within the GI tract wall. They're pretty rare and they have a nearly zero risk of malignancy. They're commonly found in the upper esophagus and are asymptomatic. And typically, they're seen at endoscopy as yellowy, white to tan, rubbery appearing lesions with a glistening, smooth surface. The management of these is if they are asymptomatic, then they can be left alone. If they're symptomatic, very large or show growth on serial examinations, then they may require removal. And again, like leiomyoma, because these are benign, they can be removed with surgical enucleation or even a partial esophagectomy if that is not technically feasible. Granular cell tumors are the next benign esophageal pathology to talk about. These are very rare, but they do have a malignant potential, uh, about 1% to 3% risk of becoming a malignancy. And if they do become a malignancy, they have a terrible five-year survival, less than 35%. The origin of these tumors are not clear. It's thought that they may be a neural origin from submucosa. Typically, they are seen as these white to yellow, sort of mildly elevated, nodular-looking tumors, which are usually covered by an intact epithelium. They're mostly asymptomatic and small, but patients can complain of mild dysphagia or retrosternal discomfort. Endoscopic ultrasound, again, is a useful investigation to confirm the location of the tumor, the size, and usually it looks benign with a homogenous uh, appearance on endoscopic ultrasound. Despite the small risk of malignant potential, these are mostly benign. 
And therefore, the management is firstly making the diagnosis. And often, if these lesions are very small, that can be done with a biopsy forcep and taking a biopsy. If they are large, then they may be removed with an endoscopic resection uh, or a submucosal dissection. But if there's any suspicion of malignancy due to the size, appearance or growth of the lesion, then this needs to be resected formally with an esophagectomy. If the tumour is more than one centimetre in size or rapidly growing, then that is a concerning feature. The next thing to talk about very briefly is adenomas. These are similar to adenomas elsewhere in the body and are almost always found in areas of Barrett's esophagus. Their management is as a lesion found in Barrett's esophagus and should be managed according to the Barrett's esophageal pathway with biopsy and resection depending on the presence or absence of surrounding dysplasia. And the last topic I wanted to mention are papillomas or squamous cell papillomas. Like papillomas elsewhere, these are exophytic projections into the esophageal lumen and they usually are white or pinkish color. They sort of look like a little wart. They are often found in the distal esophagus and usually asymptomatic. Most of these are very small and can be removed with a biopsy forcep um, and larger ones can be removed using a snare. They do theoretically have a malignant potential, but there's only one case report of this, so very, very rare. If the tumour is symptomatic or obstructing, or if malignancy cannot be ruled out, then that's an indication for removal, which can either be done via an endoscopic mucosal resection or esophagectomy, usually only if there's still a concern post-mucosal resection. And the key here is that the histopathology of these lesions can be confused with squamous cell carcinoma due to their appearance. It's worth having a look at those articles. They've got some nice pictures of what these different lesions may look like. There's a number of different lesions I haven't talked about, and these can be thought of as raised lesions, flat lesions, or cystic lesions. All of the ones I've talked about are raised lesions, and some others I haven't mentioned include fibrovascular polyps, inflammatory pseudotumors, and hyperplastic polyps. Some flat lesions that you may come across include heterotopic sebaceous glands, heterotopic gastric mucosa, glycogenic acanthosis, xanthomas, and hemangiomas. And some cystic lesions can include bronchogenic or neuroenteric cysts and esophageal duplication cysts. There was a bit of a mixed bag of topics I thought I would cover those last few topics just as a bit of content so that when we are reviewing close to the exam, we have that available to listen to. Remember to rate, review and subscribe so that others can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!